Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Causey, and uh, as that series introduction kind of lets you, and we're in a fun series this month, and uh, we kicked it off last week, really excited about it, and uh, looking at expectations and the power of expectations to shape a relationship, and, uh, and recognize that even in the midst of how this series is framed and what we're unpacking, that it's really tempting uh, to kind of maybe hear the series title and to even watch this video and to say, well, I'm single, or you know, I'm, I'm divorced, or you know, I'm a teenager. I don't know if this is necessarily going to necessarily be the best month for me. And, and I would just encourage you to hold on, because underneath this idea of marriage is relationship, and that relationship is a human thing, transcends a specific type of relationship. And what we're doing as we work through this month is we will look at marriage, but underneath it, we want to unpack what is the essential practices and steps for a healthy relationship, for what does it look like to have a healthy relationship with your parents, with your coworkers, and that all the principles that we're unpacking over the course of this month is transferable. That's what I love about this series is that God created us for relationships. We were made for it. We don't do lonely very well. We don't do isolation very well. In fact, one of the most extreme forms of punishment that we have in our criminal justice system, just second under capital punishment, is isolation. Right? I mean, that's what you do when you really want to punish someone who's in prison is you isolate them. And so this idea that you and I were made for relationships is embedded in all the areas and facets of our lives. And this series is about helping you to step into those relationships with better decisions and fewer regrets. And that's why tonight we're going to kick off uh, this exciting new thing that we're doing at Encounter Church called GroupLink. And I want to invite you to join us. You can sign up through the app. Uh, there's limited childcare available, but if you swing by starting point, we can have that conversation with you. Um, but this whole idea is that life is better together and that together we're better. And uh, so we'll take this morning, we'll, we'll take what we unpack today and we'll unpack it further tonight. Uh, but this idea of Encounter Church not being a place where you just sit shoulder to shoulder, but we want to create environments where if you want, you can find that uh, you can sit face to face and that there are people willing to walk with you and get to know you and that this can be a place where you connect, not just with God, but with other people as well. And so we're excited about this series and all that's wrapped with it and uh, look forward to hopefully seeing you here tonight if you're able if not, we'll have one more on the 25th of this month. And so I just wanted to kind of give a little commercial before I dive in. Um, I just read a story last night. I thought it was incredibly profound. Um, a couple in New Zealand uh, just recently tied the knot. His name Michael Joyce. Michael is 60, and he's uh, suffering from Alzheimer's. And as he's progressed, if you've ever been up close to this specific disease, it's, it's a really tragic one because you watch the person just kind of pass away in front of you while their body's still present. It's incredibly tragic and just gut-wrenching to be up close to. And Michael is kind of further, further sliding away. He's forgetting most things. In fact, his wife, um, Linda, he, who he'd been married to for 38 years, was starting to kind of slip away from his mind that he was even married to her. Imagine, you've been ma married for 38 years, and there's some days the person you marry doesn't know that you're married which is why this moment was so powerful, because um, they were still living together, and she's helping to take care of him. And one day he woke up, and he looked at her, and he's like, I really like you a lot, and we're living together. I think we should be married. He's like, I, I want to spend my life with you. I love you. Would you marry me? And Linda said, well, you know, 
one of the one-on-ones with someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's, you don't remind them of what they've forgotten. You go along with it. And she said yes, thinking that this is kind of a passing moment. Michael's just kind of fallen further and further away. And the next day, they woke up, and Michael looked at Linda and said, all right, are we going to do this? Are we going to get married? So she gets online, and she reaches out to some friends, and she's like, um, this may sound crazy, but many of you know the joys and the tri- tragedies of Alzheimer's and what we're going through, and I really need someone to officiate a wedding. And so on that Saturday evening, this beaming couple, both in their 60s, already married for 38 years before this in a scenic, picturesque lake as the backdrop, surrounded by their friends and ducks quacking, um, they said their vows and they kissed and they remarried. And that what you see in this picture, this small little moment in New Zealand became international news, kind of spread around uh, different channels. Washington Post picked it up, and that was what I was reading when I came across this story. And I was like, this is such a beautifully moving story. And I was like, why is a love story? Why is it international news? It's because I think these kind of moments, we dream about them. We, when we think about marriage, when we think about the quality of our relationship, this is what comes to mind, whether it's in that male form or that female form of thinking, that this is the nature and the quality of what we want. But I think it's international news because it's rare. Many of us dream about it, but we never drift into it. We don't wake up 38 years later thinking and dreaming, this is I, want to, I love this woman so much that I just want to remarry her again. And that what this series is about is about the heart, is reclaiming the quality and the nature of the relationship God intended you to have and the quality of relationships that God intended you to have. And that while they are extraordinaries, they don't have to be rare. He intended us to experience relationships with this kind of quality. And what happy couples know is that you don't get to this place on accident. You get there on purpose. And that there is intentionality that marks it. And that whether you're a teenager, whether you're single, whether you're a divorcee, or whether you've been married for decades, the reality is that all of us can see relationships around us shift to more thriving, more life-giving, more substantial places than they are today. And what I want to press in specifically is what happy couples know around this area of communication, because if there's anything that is both the strength or the pitfall of a relationship, it's around communication, right? Words, these ever-present things that we say, this thing that you will be present for for the next 25 minutes that I'm going to be doing have the power to shape and to set a course. And that many of us, because we're so used to our words, we oftentimes don't give thought to the power they might have. And I'm convinced, and what we will see today as we dive into a section of Scripture, is that what happy couples know is that it's not just what you say, it's the way you say it that matters too. That just what you say is not enough. It's the way you say it that's essential as well. And then I want us to, to, to spend time unpacking three verses found 
in a very ancient letter written to an ancient city that has profound impact on today's way of communicating. And in working through these few verses, what I, find, what I think you'll find was what I found is three distinct ways that you and I can communicate better. Not so much around what we're saying, but the way that we even say it in the first place. If uh, you have the app downloaded that Jason referenced earlier, uh, you'll find in the message note the verse is already preloaded for you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you're still in the process of downloading it, you'll find that the passages will actually be on the screen with me as I'm working through them. Uh, but let me kind of set the backdrop. This is found in the letter of Ephesians. And it's called the letter of Ephesians, or the, the book of Ephesians, because it was written by Paul, the one of the most famous Christians, the one that's responsible for spreading Christianity beyond the area of Jerusalem and Judea 2,000 years ago. This man who is this brilliant trilingual religious scholar who has this experience that transforms his life. And then he goes on the back of Roman roads and trade routes and takes this idea, this hope, this good news of Christianity into the world. And he does so in an incredibly successful way. He is going from city to city, and he's teaching and preaching, and he's starting churches, and things like this are popping up everywhere. But he's constantly on the move. He finds himself in prison at time because Christianity is, is illegal. It violates the kind of the core law that was against the Roman view of religion, which was that um, you can have any religion, but Caesar had to be the top authority figure in your life. And Paul comes along saying that Jesus is Lord, which is the same word that the Romans would use for Caesar. So this made it illegal. So Paul would oftentimes find himself in prison, and Paul had this pressure. He really wanted these people that he had helped to kind of mobilize and, and awaken to the idea of who Jesus really was. He wanted them to not just have the wow of Christianity, he wanted them to have the how of Christianity. And so he writes these letters to these people so that they could know how to live it. Their lives had been impacted by it, but they didn't necessarily know what it looked like to live it. And so one of these groups, the church in Ephesus, that experiences this powerful wow. All of the city has this moment where Paul is there, where they kind of become aware of Christianity. There are people's lives being radically changed. And while not everyone in the city accepted what Paul was preaching and teaching about, everyone was aware of it. And it caused this big citywide stir to the point that riots break out and Paul's life is endangered because of the, the sheer animosity people have towards him. And so Paul knows that this is a city with people who are hungry. They've had the wow. They've seen the life change. They felt the inner transformation. But what they desperately needed was the how. And so he writes this letter. And the letter that we call now the book of Ephesians is filled with these powerful hows. Powerful hows that while almost 2,000 years old, are profoundly, eerily just present for today's implications. He spends the first part of Ephesians talking about racial reconciliation. Does so thousands of years before people are starting to wake up of this idea of racial reconciliation. And he's unpacking what the church was meant to be in this area of race and reconciliation and what Jesus does. And he's moving through not just this area of how we interact with people of other ethnicities and races and what Jesus does in the midst of that and these beautifully sweeping passages about it. He, he shifts to other areas of parenting and marriage and finances. And he, 
camps out on one in these few verses that I want to spend time unpacking over the next 20 minutes with you. He talks about communication. And what he does in these few verses is he shows us, for those who've experienced the wow, here's what the how looks like. He says, here's three ways that this way of communication should look. Now, the beauty is, is that even if you're here today and you're not a Christian uh, and you, you're not connected with the wow, you'll find that this how is still applicable to your life. You'll, you'll find that you can put into effect what we're going to look at, that regardless of where you are in the journey, no matter where you are in this process, that you'll find that these, this instruction given to a group of people who had experienced the wow, to, to how to translate it into the how, can be just as equally impactful for you in casting a vision for what your communication could look like. The first one is, um, he begins with, uh, therefore, remember he's unpacking so much stuff and so he's transitioning. He's like, therefore, in light of the wow, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This first kind of moment he presses into around communication is in this area of truthfulness. This, this is one of those first distinctive ways in how we should communicate truthfully. He kind of puts this in contrast to the tendency, which is falsehood, which is really clear-cut. Most of us, if we press into it, uh, we realize that this is something, that there's a default tendency we have as humans to avoid truthfulness, this whole glaringly open honesty. And we tend to prefer to couch things and downplay things and kind of say half-truths. We're far more comfortable saying a little bit of the truth, not all of it. And I think that if there's been anything recently that we've been able to watch the news and learn is that half-truths are far more devastatingly impactful than a full-out lie. Half-truths have just enough to hold on to make you think you understand while all along you've bought in and believed the lie. And this is where Paul presses into it. He's like, look... We have to be intentional. We put off falsehoods. It's literally this taking off of this old way of acting, of couching and downplaying and minimizing and only sharing half-truth with those people in the relationships that we find ourselves with. He's like, no, that's not to be the mark. What's to mark us is truth, this whole truth, truthfulness. Because he recognizes the tendency is that we, we won't do that. And he puts this interesting statement in there. He says, for we are all members of one body. And I think this is the, the, the really insightful part that he places. He's, he's like, look, I'm telling you to be honest and truthful. And the reason why is because we're all interconnected. I remember growing up and you, you learn these little pithy statements that you just kind of assume is right or real. And one of them is what they don't know won't hurt them. That's one of those little subtle lies you get kind of taught when you're growing up. Oh, what... What they don't know won't hurt them. And this is exactly what Paul's pressing against. He's like, no, no, no. We're all interconnected. Your lie, the thing that you hold back from them, hurts you and them. It's doing damage. Uh, In my house, I have a a beautiful little six-year-old daughter who is essentially a fruitarian, Um, which means she's expensive and she likes to eat fruit and uh, doesn't really prefer any other thing outside of fruit. And um, 
and is even picky about the type of fruit that she prefers. Like, oh, is this, like, is this good fruit? Oh, that fruit's been uh, bruised. Oh, I'm, that fruit has some coloration to it. I'm not sure about that. And so it's, it's an expensive uh, kind of food habit. And, um, but because she's essentially a practicing fruititarian, it means that her refrigerator is always filled with fruit. And I kind of found myself one night um, that I found this container of pineapple stuck in the refrigerator. It was like a pineapple that had been like really fancy, just kind of shaved off and kind of cored and stuck in a container. And I was like, hmm, that looks good. I don't eat pineapple very often. So I grab it and Jenny and I are sitting there and we're watching something and I'm just kind of mindlessly eating pineapple, which has got to be better than mindlessly eating potato chips, right? And so I'm just mindlessly eating um, pineapple. And about uh, 10 minutes into this mindlessly eating pineapple, I look at Jenny and I'm like, my mouth really hurts. It's like raw and it feels all like, you know, like, I don't know, like I've chewed fiberglass or something. It's just painful. And I was like, I think something's wrong with me. And she's like, well, you've been eating pineapple. I think that can hurt your mouth after a while. And I'm like kind of a nerd. I don't know about you, but when I'm in trouble, I turn to the one source I know I can find answers, Google. And so I, I Google, why is my mouth burning after I just binge ate pineapple? And um, in Dali, there's a whole group of us. I should start a club because it just instantly popped up, right? Isn't that a, like a reassuring thing when you start to Google and you realize there's other weird people in the world just like you because it's already there because someone else has searched it? And so as I'm searching, it pops up and then I start reading. And I'm like, after a few minutes of like jumping through websites and reading all about it, I was like, Jenny, this is incredible. Did you know pineapple is the only natural fruit where bromelain is found? It's this specific enzyme that pineapple has. And she's like, no, did not know that, but you do. It's incredible. Jenny, here's the irony of pineapple. Do you know what bromelain is? No, but you do. Bromelain is this enzyme that breaks down protein. She's like, oh, cool. It's like, yeah, it's used in meat tenderizer. It's like, here's the irony. While I was eating pineapple, pineapple was eating me. <laughs> because that's what was happening. Bromelain's being released as I'm chewing it up, and it's literally eating away at my mouth. And I'm just like, well played, pineapple. Well played. Right? And I haven't eaten pineapple since because I was like, I'm not comfortable that a fruit was eating me back while I was eating it. But this is the point Paul's trying to make. He's like, look, when we lie, when we share half-truths, when we blame shift, in the end, we are eroding the very relationship we think we're trying to protect. While we're speaking, it's eating away the fibers that connect us. And this is why he, he, he kind of puts that simple line in there that, no, 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 we are connected to one another. So what does it look like to speak truthfully, to not blame shift, to not fall into these traps? Well, here's a couple of kind of practical applications that you and I can interact with. One is that you shift away from you statements. I don't know about you, but the you did this, you said that. In that moment of conflict, it's easy to start pulling out the you statements instead of I statements. All right? You take care of yourself. I statements, not you statements, are one of the ways that we speak truthfully. Because you don't know what's going on inside of them. So the moment you use the word you, you're stepping into the realm of potential falsehoods. Because you don't know what their brain is thinking when they made that statement. You don't know. But you do know you. I, 
felt this way, or I think fill in the blank. And so that's one way that we can kind of shift and begin to speak truthfully. Another one is we don't make the subtle shift of what they do become a who statement, right? You ever felt those moments where what they did becomes who they are? They said something insensitive, but now they are insensitive. They did something that was selfish, but you said they're selfish. That's subtle. There's power in that. You doing something stupid versus being stupid. Okay, some of us grew, in, grew up in households where, yes, we did some stupid things, but how did you get reacted? You, you got told you were stupid. You grow up being told you're stupid instead of what you did was stupid, and that will shape you at the core of who you are. So we don't confuse the do and the who statements. We don't, we don't mix them up because we realize they're damaging. And this one is really helpful. But this last way of kind of being kind of truthful and getting away and putting away the falsehoods is instead of making complaints, make requests. Right? This is subtle. But instead of complaining, right, this personal testimony, instead of complaining that I left the trash that was placed beside the door and I didn't take it to the trash can, Right? My wife is brilliant. She doesn't complain about it. She, she requests me to do it. And sometimes that request is tied to the door handle so I can't get out the house. But the request is clear. It's not a complaint like you always forget or you never. It's request, trash bag tied to the door so I can't get out. Can you take this down for me? But if, we're, if you just pick one of those, write it down in the message note and says, you know what, I'm going to start to make requests instead of complaints when I have conflict, you will find that there's going to be a powerful shift. But he goes on in verse 26, um, he, he says, do not, and he says, in your anger, do not sin. And there's a lot in verse 26, but I just want to camp out in this, this initial phrase. He says, in your anger, do not sin. I love that. It's not just that we're to be truthful. He's pointing to a different way of communicating, a way that's calm. Paul knows that he, he, I mean, if you kind of grew up thinking that I'm going to find that perfect someone and we're never going to argue, that's a lie, and I'm sorry. And I'm grateful that Paul isn't being romantic. He, he's not being idealistic. He writes this verse because you will have points of anger in any relationship. No matter how great the relationship, he doesn't say if you happen to ever get angry. He says, no, in your anger, implied you will be angry. But he offers this point of hope. In your anger, do not sin. He's saying to us that it is possible to be angry, to disagree, and simultaneously to do it rightly. That there is a way that your emotions can be present in an argument without taking control over you. Because the default, the reason he says this, is the default is to be controlled by our emotions in those moments. You get angry, what do you do? You shout it out or you shut down? We allow the emotions to grab hold of us and pull us in, and all of a sudden our blood pressure goes up and that vein pops out and face turns red, and you just start to feel all this righteousness inside of you, and you statements start to pour out of our mouth. And we're completely controlled by our emotions instead of being in control of them. And Paul doesn't downplay it. He, he doesn't criticize the anger. What he does is he warns about the response. 
Many of us somehow bought into this idea that anger, when I'm angry, it's a blank check. I can say what I want to say. I can do what I want to do. And there have been relationships destroyed by people who thought anger was a blank check. I think a couple weeks ago I referenced Dwight D. Eisenhower. I love biographies and I spend a lot of time reading about a bunch of dead people. And one of the things that's interesting about Eisenhower is that Eisenhower growing up had an anger problem, a severe anger problem. And his parents said, look, Dwight, you have dreams, but your dreams will always be derailed by your anger if you don't deal with them. And so Dwight learned early on to deal with his anger. One of the things that he would do that's really applicable is he would write the art of the angry letter. He would write letters that he would never send. He would give vent in healthy ways to the anger that was present. Because he, 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 he grew up with this realization that anger can destroy relationships. Uh, recently, Ella and I were on a flight together. And we were sitting there side by side, and we were playing Go Fish. And, um, and I was like, Ella, i got to go to the bathroom. How about you shuffle the cards? And I'll come back. She's like, Daddy, I want to come. And I'm like, no, baby. The bathroom is about as big as Daddy's shoe. And um, it's just not, not okay. And so I'm going to go to the restroom. You stay here. Shuffle the cards. When I get back, we'll play Old Mate. And so I go to the restroom. And um, I come out, okay? And you know how when you walk out of the restroom, there's like the long aisle. So you can like see from front to the back of the plane. And I come out of the restroom. And there, about halfway down the plane, is my daughter crawling like a cat, down the aisle. And I was like, what in the world is that girl doing? And there's this like little bit of anger that comes up because I'm like, this is not safe. One is no one sees her because she is stealthily crawling. I mean, like down, low. And at the point I see her, she's like a few inches from a man's foot right beside his seat. And I'm like, Ella, because I don't want to scream. Ella! You know, so you got that whisper scream going on. This is really weird physics. And she turns around. And I'm like, get back to your seat. What are you doing? She was like, Daddy, Daddy, I was crawling down the aisle like a cat because I wanted to sneak up to the bathroom and peek in and go meow. And I was like, baby, that's really sweet. But don't ever do that again. It's not okay. And it could have been really easy in that moment. Let me just be real. Like, it could have been really easy as a parent to fall into the trap of people noticing I'm kind of having to correct my daughter who's crawling down the aisle of the airplane like a kitty. And there would have been that sense of, like, pride and embarrassment kind of welling up inside of me. And it had been really easy to lash out. Like, what? What in the world? But the way I say things matters. So in that moment, I just kind of pocket this like genuine frustration because I care about her safety. And I keep that controlled. And I'm like, Ella, it's not okay that you crawl down the aisles in the middle of airplanes when daddy's not beside you or ever. Let's be safe. And, and so I was able to kind of redirect. And the anger that was appropriate in that moment, the little bit of anger, is put in its context. And I'm able to explain why I was so concerned when I walked out of the bathroom, and I saw what was happening. And that's a moment where I win, but there's some moments where I don't. And I think the intention, God's desire for us, is that we would win more often. That there would be those moments that we would feel the anger, and instead of lashing out, instead of being controlled by the emotion, we control the emotion. And for some of you, it may be just simply taking a step back and 
taking a, a breath or two or three or ten. It may be, hey, I can't talk about this right now. You have really upset me. And instead of using the you, you say, I'm really upset right now. I need some time to process through the words I heard and how that impacted me. So I need you to go to your room, and I'll be in in 20 minutes. And let's talk through it, and not, instead of escalating it. Because that never works when you start to shout it out against each other. That doesn't help resolve anything. And, and Paul recognizes that there's a power, and this is why in 26 he goes on, right? He says to this next point, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. He gives them this very practical advice. It's not enough for you to be truthful. It's not enough to be calm. He says, look, you need to stay current in your frustrations. You need to stay current in the way that you engage. Instead of bringing up the past, it needs to be focused on the present. I don't know about you, but the default, right? It's really easy to get into some moment of conflict and what starts to fill the conversation and the way that the conversation goes sounds like record keeping or a historian has showed up. All of a sudden, you've got books and reams of the things that they've done over the last six months. Well, remember this, and then sometimes we go generational, and you're like, you are just like your mother. And you're like, what? And then that, that always solves the problem, right? But we, go to, we turn into historians. We pull the records out and all the, the records we've been keeping, and we start to recount them. We start to, to unpack, and we use words like always and Every time or you never. Words that aren't even genuinely honest. Because no matter how bad you are, always and never and every time does not apply to any of us. We're not that consistent. right? Even bad people can't be consistently bad. They have accidental days. And so the reality is, is that we use these words, we fall into this trap, and we slip into the past, and we start to recount all the things. And instead of dealing with the current, all this stuff that we've never dealt with is underneath the surface comes spilling up to the top. And we use this one moment to unpack and unleash all the other moments we've ever been frustrated that we haven't said anything. And they come flooding up. And then Paul instructs us to be current in the way that we interact and to stay fresh in how we speak to one another. Because if we do so, what we will do is protect our relationship. A relationship that's always current, up to balance, is a healthy one. A one that's starting to fall back has far more damaging effects than potential credit rating drops. This is why he warns them, right? He goes on to warn them with this strange statement, and do not give the devil a foothold. This is this outcome he warns about. Now, the devil in the New Testament is used a couple of different ways. One, it is a very, the person of evil. But in this situation, he doesn't literally mean that if you aren't being truthful, calm, and current in the way that you communicate, that some little short red figure with a pitchfork and a little bifurcated tail is going to sneak into and set up a foothold. In this moment, what he, he's referring to is sometimes the word devil being used as the personification of what evil is. Right? And that this 
presence of evil, that the personification and of the details and the characteristics and the outcome of evil starts to gain in your life. And he uses this military term, which is why this statement on the surface can be kind of a little confusing for you. The idea of a foothold is completely military. So the way that you would begin to press up against your army, the way, um, in fact, the most recent example I could give you would be something like World War II and D-Day. That's kind of a common historically um, kind of common aware foothold kind of moment. What happens is the Allied forces press in and they gain a foothold in Europe through D-Day. And a foothold is great, but a foothold sounds exactly what it is. It's the beginning. It's a small presence in an enemy territory. A foothold has to progress and eventually a foothold becomes a stronghold. And that's when you've got a fort, you've got a base, you've, got, you've, tran- you've changed the city, and now you have a stronghold inside of an enemy's territory. And his warning is like, if we're not being sensitive to the way we're communicating, what will happen is that these things, the outcome is that footholds are gained. Contempt slips in. Bitterness slips in. Frustration carves out a space in the relationship. And that this thing starts to grow and build hurt and pain and disappointment. Eventually those footholds grow and they become strongholds and you have distance in your relationship and estrangement and for those who are married, divorce. But that's how those small footholds turn into those strongholds. Is it's incremental. And that's the warning he gives. He's like, look, what you think is small is a moment where you could lose and give away, give away ground in your relationship. Did you know that the Hatfield and McCoys, this famous American feud, do you know what it was built on? What it was built on was in 1878, Randolph McCoy accused Floyd Hatfield of stealing a pig. A pig. Now, I like bacon, and I like ham. But what happens out of this moment is decades of strife and violence and dozens of people die and spend time in prison and jail. Why? Because of a pig. That pig was the foothold that turned into a strong stronghold of what's one of the most kind of famous, nationally known family feuds. And this is what Paul's warning against. Be careful. These things have destructive power. And this is why the way you communicate matters. And then he gives this (coughs) statement at the end, which kind of was weird to me as I was processing this over the last couple of weeks. In verse 28, in the midst of all this communication, and then if we went to verse 29, you'd find out verse 29 is about communication. But yeah, in the middle of all of this talk on talk, (coughs) he says this, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must do work. Do something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And I remember kind of processing through this and reading different kind of commentaries and backgrounds and and came across an idea that it hit me. I was like, it finally unlocked this passage. Is that what Paul was doing is in the midst of explaining the how, he wanted to remind them of the power of the wow. And so what does he do? He takes this moment, he takes this individual And he says, because of what Christianity does, the criminal becomes a contributor. Notice the thief, the one who had made, who the one who had broken into homes, he's now building homes for the poor. Like that's the type of transformation 
That's the power of the internal shift that Christianity brings. This is why Paul, I think, sticks this passage inside of here. As one commentary has said, that the thief becomes the philanthropist. That's the wow of Christianity. And it's a reminder of the power of Christianity, which is why in the midst of all this communication, it may feel hard and it may feel difficult. Your defaults may be what some of the defaults I referenced. You may find it a whole lot easier to be controlled by your anger than to be in control. You may find it a whole lot easier to share falsehoods than truth. It may be easier for you to blame shift than take responsibility. But in the midst of that, Paul is trying to say, but remember, for those who have accepted Jesus, this wow has power to, to fuel the how. It's this incredibly uplifting, inspirational moment that Paul tucks inside of here. A moment that I just recently came across a story that captured it for me. Um, two weeks ago, the f- kind of the fruit of this story came came out to play. See, in August of 2017, Max Leibowitz, who was in his 60s, who had uh, kind of lived the last decade plus of kidney dialysis every single week, whose health was further and further declining, um, decided to go with his family to Disney World. And they had a wheelchair and they were pushing him around. And Disney World's one of those staple places if you travel. You'll see people who were there because it can be kind of a last hurrah in life. I mean, we were there a couple weeks ago and we saw a girl in a wheelchair being pushed around that says, not today, cancer, today we Disney. And she's bald and all her hair and she's fragile and frail. And Disney is a place that people go because for some, it's that make-a-wish kind of final moment. And Max and his family are there and he needs a kidney transplant desperately and he's on all of these lists and none of them are working out for him. And so the family comes up with an idea. They make a t-shirt that says, I need a kidney. O negative is my blood type. And then there's a phone number at the bottom. And while he is with his family at Disney, someone walks up to him and says, can I take a picture of your shirt? And she snaps a picture. She shares it and tens, tens of thousands of people start to share it. And it kind of builds this groundswell. And that phone number that was put on the t-shirt starts to get dozens, and then soon, 100-plus phone calls. And eventually, one of those phone calls is a guy named Richie Sully, who lives in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's a single, single father who has two daughters, and he gets on a bus to drive 16 hours to have further testing done to make sure that he's compatible. And then a few weeks ago, Richie and Max are both placed on an operating table, and Richie gives Max his kidney. And what stood out about that story when I read it was, man, this captures what Paul was trying to say, that it's not just what you say that has power, that the way you say it can breathe and bring life. It can transform a broken relationship. It can transform your marriage. It can transform the relationship you have with your kids and your coworkers, that when you wake up to just not what you say, but the way you say it, that what you might find in the wake of that is what happy couples already know, is that in the end, life comes, not just in what you say, but the way you say it. Let's pray.